which you'll find in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 12 as we continue on in the exposition. Uh, and again, here in chapter 12, I've picked out just a few verses uh, representing the entire chapter uh, as we give an overview. So in the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 12, let us hear and attend to God's Word beginning in verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, began to uh, uh, speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers or um, uh, uh, to farmers uh, that are tending it or that are uh, renting it, and went into a far country. And then we look down at verse 12, and they, that is the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders who heard this, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And then over to verse 17, And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And then in verses 34 through 37, And when Jesus saw uh, that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Then Jesus answered and said while he taught them in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them, in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. So he came, so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty, and put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. A unique quality of the Bible as the living Word of God in Scripture, in writing, that has been given to us by divine inspiration and providentially preserved for us, a, a unique quality of the Bible as the living Word of God is its sufficiency for self-interpreting meaning. Here's a working translation from 2 Peter 1. I, I know you've heard the scripture oftentimes, but I've done the working uh, translation to sort of bring out some emphasis for us. Knowing this first, that every prophecy, every telling forth of scripture does not come from someone's own or self-interpretation. For prophecy was not ever by the will of man brought out, but rather by the Holy Spirit being driven along, holy men of God spoke. And then we have this uh, Useful application from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 9. 
The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Self-interpreting. Scripture interprets Scripture. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Now, if you think about it in terms of biblical history and in terms of Christian history, every generation must contend for the faith and for the authority of the Word of God. Every generation. I've seen it just in my short lifetime that covers maybe some awareness of, uh, say, up to three generations. But as I look back historically, both in the Bible history and then in the developments of Christian history up to our present day, every generation has to contend again and stand for the authority of Scripture, the nature of Scripture as being uh, divinely inspired and providentially preserved, and that Scripture is sufficient in and unto itself, this means plenary, to mean and to reveal the meaning that God intended. There are things that are knowable. Um, so the quality, this, this particular unique quality of being self-interpreting is because it's essentially connected to God's self-revelation. God's self-revelation through creation that the scriptures talk about and identify. God's self-revelation through scripture that the scriptures claim. And God's self-revelation through the incarnation of Jesus, the word of God. Uh, and so we're dealing with this matter of what is knowable and what is authoritative. And our standing for that in terms of this unique and particular quality of the Bible as being the living word of God. Other human writings might have some uh, element of self-interpreting about them. But here we're talking about something in a separate class and that's unique unto itself. And that is when we say that the Bible is living as the word of God. And that it is self-interpreting because it is essentially connected to God's self-revelation. And so here in chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, I... I I want to continue on by giving you an overview and a summary. I've told you I think the chapter divisions are useful. We know they were not part of the inspired original text of Scripture, but there is a good reason why they've been set out for us. It's not arbitrary that they are set out and divided the way they are. And I think it's very useful. And so I've tried to give you a summary of each chapter. I wish we had time to go into the full exposition. We were able to do that uh, in the past a little bit from, for some chapters. But now, uh, trying to finish up, uh, we come to uh, the overview of chapter 12. And the theme, I believe, that is uh, well represented here is that the New Covenant Christian Gospel provides the interpretive key to all the Holy Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament. And I know that's not a new idea to you. I know you've heard that idea before. Um, we say that Christ is the key to the Scriptures, that He is the interpretive key. But what I'm saying is that, that this connection with who Christ is in terms of the new covenant Christian gospel. Jesus came preaching, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark says this is how the, the source of the gospel is to be found in who Jesus Christ is and the message he came preaching. So the New Covenant Christian Gospel provides the interpretive key to all the Holy Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament. And as, as we find here in chapter 12, Jesus looks back. I've already mentioned to you uh, through our uh, worship service this morning references to Psalm 118 and Psalm 110. There are other conflated uh, Old Testament passages that Jesus puts together 
as he uh, uh, is um, teaching and as he is challenging and his, as he is revealing who he is and God's purpose uh, here in chapter 12. And so I wish we had the time and what I would really have been wanted to do is to take these sections also and to show you how they are elaborated by, by giving you reference to the New Testament writings where these very themes and these very teachings are elaborated and, and um, uh, enlarged for us through the New Testament writings, showing us that there is not conflict, that the Apostle Paul, for example, did not derail Christianity and take it in a different direction than what Jesus intended. No, by the Holy Spirit, he expounded on the seeds that Jesus planted. So did Peter. So did John. So did all the writers of the New Testament scriptures. And so as we look here in Mark chapter 12, in verses 1 through 12, Jesus summarized Jewish apostasy and by covenantal pledge, all anti-Christian religions, by his parable of the wicked vine dressers, the tenant farmers that he gives a story about here. And this meaning has uh, impact beyond just academic concern. I mean, as we read this, uh, we can identify what Jesus is saying. The, the religious leaders understood the impact of what he was saying they perceived that he was telling the parable against them and their apostasy that they turned against what God had revealed in his way of salvation and his fulfillment of the old covenant for the new covenant in the person of the Lord Jesus as the anointed one the Messiah they turned against God's way of salvation and in so doing they apostatized and so what Jesus is telling us a story about here is about Jewish apostasy now that's a challenge for us. We hear the term Jewish and we think, usually we think either uh, an ethnicity or we think of a national identity. But the term Jewish primarily is religious. And Jesus is telling this story in terms of the wicked vine dressers who abused the servants of the vine owner. And then when he sent them his son, they wantonly murdered him with the idea that now we can take the inheritance for ourselves the way we want it. So what Jesus is saying here is that God is the vine dresser. He, God is the one who owns the vineyard. And that God sent his servants, his prophets before. And those faithful servants of the Lord under the old covenant, be they prophets or priests or kings, those who served as the anointed representatives of God, and what did the uh, response show in those who rejected God's way and God's salvation and God's rule and God's mediation and God's word? What did it show? They abused those servants that God sent to them. They beat some. They uh, abused in different ways and imprisoned and tortured and killed them. And then when God sent his own son, the heir, what did they do? And this is what Jesus is saying. He knew what was in their hearts. They had been intending and they were uh, uh, planning for the murder of the Lord Jesus to get rid of him. And yet he identified and testified to be the very son of God, the heir, the Messiah. And so in this story that Jesus told, he is warning about Jewish apostasy. And we need to understand that primarily as religion. Those who are originally part of Jewish Old Testament religion were Semitic by their um, uh, 
uh, ethnicity. Today, we hear anti-Semitism, and there's a big conflict going on and ugly stuff that's going on. But what we need to understand is it's not only Jewish people who are Semitic, who are descendants of Shem. Arabic peoples are descendants of Shem as well, if you read the Bible and believe the Bible. So we're not just talking about an uh, ethnicity here. We're talking about a religion. In, in terms of uh, nationality, in, in the days of Jesus, there was a, a region of Judea. And the Jews were identified with being in the region of Judea mainly. Of course, they lived in other places as well. But that was a, a region that was identified geopolitically for us. And so in reference to the Jews who lived in Judea, there was that kind of identity. But today, when we reference those who live in that area, we call them uh, uh, Israelis. And, and many people who are Israelis are not Jewish in terms of their practice of religion. Many of them are just agnostic. They don't practice Judaism. Some practice Orthodox Judaism. Some practice a, a liberal form of Judaism called Reform Judaism. But we need to understand that Judaism is primarily a religion. And Jesus is telling this parable about religious apostasy as a pledge covenantally against all religious apostasy and anti-Christian and Christian apostasy. I should say anti-Christian religion, anti-Christian opposition, but Christian apostasy. So that's the question that comes up uh, from the application of this parable. How does this summary of Jewish apostasy serve as a warning about anti-Christian religions and Christian apostasy? That's a very serious question. And I do wish we had more time to talk about it, but I do want you to know the New Testament talks about it extensively. We go on then to verses 13 through 17 here in chapter 12. And Jesus separated the realm of the kingdom of God in heaven from the limited sphere of earthbound secular powers by showing a Roman inscribed coin. You see, they got together, those religious leaders, and they thought they were going to be able to really ensnare Jesus in this, uh, this naughty question that was both theological and political. They, they mixed it together, and they thought because they were struggling over it, and because they were even secretive in their uh, uh, despised uh, uh, view toward Rome, that they would really catch Jesus. And they said to him, you know, who do we uh, serve? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And they, they thought that they really had formulated a, a snare for the Lord Jesus. And Jesus answers them by um, asking for a, a Roman coin, an inscribed Roman coin. So Jesus separated the realm of the kingdom of God in heaven from the limited sphere of earthbound secular powers by showing an inscribed Roman coin. And, and we've heard that. Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. And we marvel, as they did, we marvel at Jesus' answer here. So Jesus uses, and I would ask you, how do you understand that Jesus uses Scripture and covenant theology to help clarify the faith realm of moral and ethical belief and behavior interacting with, we live in this world, interacting with the secular sphere of the material and practical limitations on money and duties? That's a huge question. That question in our day is being uh, debated with, with uh, just wildfire. I think, again, we have a, a great benefit in, in, in the history of the confession of uh, our Christian faith and in the Reformed Church. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a premier chapter on Christian liberty and the liberty of conscience. And it helps to direct us 
in this very thorny question about rendering unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. As I believe Jesus here addresses that in terms of the scriptures and covenant theology, helping to clarify for us the faith realm of moral and ethical belief and behavior. But we live and we interact in this secular sphere of the material and practical and the limitations that are a part of that money and duties that we are struggling with. So I'm not saying this is simple, but I'm saying Jesus did address it and he directs us where to look for answers. Going on in verses 18 through 27, Jesus sanctioned the biblical doctrine of the resurrection from the dead as a theological certainty sourced in God's self-revelation by covenantal condescension without contradicting his divine perfections considering human moral dilemmas. So, interestingly, in this story, uh, Jesus is confronted by the Sadducees and the Herodian party. These were the rationalists of the day. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. But they come posing this hypothetical question. They think that they will really ensnare Jesus. Well, the others haven't been able to do it, but we'll be able to. So we're going to come and we're going to present him with this moral dilemma. That there is a regulation from Moses under the old covenant called the law of the Leverite that if a couple were married and the man died before he gave issue in children to his wife, then the next closest of kin in terms of brother or others was to take her and take her in as wife to raise up children to her. And so these Sadducees come and say, well, we had this real moral dilemma for us because... You see, there was a couple married, and he died. Her first husband died before they had children. So the second brother took her, and he died before they had children. And the third brother, and he died. And there were seven brothers, and they all died before they were able to to raise up children or, or to give children. And so in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They thought they had really got Jesus in the crosshairs on that one. And how does Jesus respond to them? He says, you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. First of all, you misunderstand the nature of resurrection. But resurrection is a certainty based on the self-revelation of God in his covenant dealings. And regarding what scripture reveals, you don't even believe what the scriptures say. When God revealed himself to Moses in covenant and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And all who hate him love death. Jesus didn't say that, but that's where the scriptures go. God declares, all who hate me love death. It's a death culture. The Sadducees were a death culture. So Jesus sanctioned the biblical doctrine of resurrection from the dead as a theological certainty sourced in God's self-revelation by covenantal condescension without contradicting his moral divine perfections considering human moral dilemmas. We need to look to God and to his character, whom God reveals himself to be when we face these moral dilemmas. There are many moral dilemmas that are facing us right now because people have despised the word of God and God's self-revelation. God's self-revelation is as creator who sets the boundaries of our identity and our being, separates us from his other creation as his image bearers. We look to God's self-revelation and his moral character to settle these moral dilemmas. But what do we receive from the world when we speak of the absoluteness of God? Hatred. The world hates God and those who love God. 
Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Here is another reference from the Westminster Confession of Faith that I found to be so helpful, and, I, and, and it's, it holds me. It's rooted for me. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He has been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, with the disputes or the interest in what is covenant theology, to me, this sets us on the right path. We start out with the asking the right question when it comes to what is covenant theology by God's self-revelation and his willing condescension. Do you know that equates, equates with grace? When we talk about the eternal covenant of grace, when we talk about God's doctrines of grace, it's by God's self-revelation and his willing condescension. It's a powerful and um, wonderful starting place for what the scriptures reveal regarding uh, God's covenant. So how does the biblical doctrine of the resurrection from the dead depend on covenant theology by the covenantal pledge of Jesus' resurrection, confirming the new covenant Christian gospel, harmonizing with the universal moral law of God? I wish I had time to elaborate. I hope you'll put those parts together and think about it in terms of the, the eternal covenant of grace and, and God's willing condescension to make himself known to us in blessedness and reward by his plan of salvation and how it is that the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead depends on covenant theology, that God is the God of the living and not the dead. When God revealed himself to Moses and said, this is how you'll know me, by my covenant name, by my special name. Yahweh, I am that I am. I am the God of the living, not of the dead. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says, I am that God. And I am the God of the resurrection. He who believes in me shall never die. And he who dies and believes in me shall never die. You shall have eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am God. I am. So covenant theology. The doctrine of the resurrection is rooted in the covenantal pledge of Jesus' resurrection, the I am, and it harmonizes with the universal moral law of God, how we worship God as the only God. He is the God of the living and not of the dead. In verses 38 through, uh, I'm sorry, 28 through 34, Jesus simplified covenant theology by the supreme law of God-referenced love, comprehending the ultimate meaning of of life encoded within human conscience and endorsed as a way to approach the kingdom of God or heaven. Uh, when Jesus interacts with this um, young scribe, or I don't know if he's a young scribe, the scribe who comes to him and has heard this conversation and how Jesus has answered, and he's moved that Jesus has such well-formed, uh, informed answers. And so he comes to Jesus, and, and, and some may think that he's trying to ensnare Jesus. Others think that, no, he's really moved because of what he's heard, and he's been a part of these ongoing debates about what is the great commandment? What's most important for us? And that he actually sincerely asked Jesus. And it would seem from his follow-up that he is sincere when he says to Jesus, what is the great commandment? 
See, the scribes and Pharisees were, were all about disputing and falling into different groups and parties about how many commandments there are, how many positive commandments, how many negative commandments, uh, as they tried to sort it out and tried to enumerate and tried to codify the law of God into a checklist of their own righteousness. And this scribe comes hearing Jesus' responses and he recognizes that he has deep answers and he says, what is the great commandment? And so Jesus simplified covenant theology by the supreme law of God-referenced love, comprehending the ultimate meaning of life encoded within human conscience. And Jesus endorsed this as a way to approach the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So, as I was considering this and Jesus' answer here, the first and great commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these two. Jesus puts them together as indivisible. There is no other commandment. We, we always are falling into a point of dividing, the first and second table. I don't know, for convenience sake, it's good, and for, for study's sake. But notice here that Jesus says they are inseparable. They are un, undivided in terms of what comes first and how that works out in our life. They're inseparable. Um, we have something that approaches that in our own teaching aids. If you'll remember the larger catechism and the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the very first question, what is the chief end of man? What is the most important goal and purpose of, our, of one's uh, life? What is the chief end of man? And so that's based upon Jesus here. And Jesus conflates, he puts together, he draws on several Old Testament passages of Scripture about the supreme law of God-referenced love. It validates New Testament quotations and references of the Old Testament scriptures applying the new covenant dynamic to the universal moral law of God. That's why it's so important for us. And, and while we, put the, uh, we connect the dots here from what Jesus is teaching to the balance of New Testament scripture. Yes, we can look back and see Jesus is quoting scripture from the Old Testament. Jesus is validating for us that the Old uh, Testament is the word of God. It's meaningful. It's purposeful. It's useful to us in being able to identify and understand the nature of the New Covenant Christian gospel. That's why we don't throw away the Old Testament. We embrace it and say it's the Old Testament and more in terms of the New Covenant in Jesus' blood. And so this is a very useful question. How does Jesus conflating, drawing, and putting together Old Testament scriptures about the supreme law of God-referenced love, how does that validate for us, the New Testament quotations and references of the Old Testament scriptures applying the New Covenant dynamic to the universal moral law of God. That's one of the big themes. I've tried to, to in, engage with that over the years of ministry here and preaching to you, how we engage with the, the New Covenant dynamic in terms of the universal moral law of God. That's a big question and one that is often uh, disputed and misrepresented. And yet, Scripture does address it. I believe Scripture addresses it clearly. That's why this value in our balancing out the teachings of Jesus here with how it's enlarged in terms of the New Testament writings on these very matters. 
And then going on to verses 35 through 37, Jesus supported the doctrines of the Holy Trinity and the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture by connecting his self-revelation throughout Scripture. Here, Jesus referenced Psalm 110, and he turns the tables on his, uh, um, those who are disputing with him. He turns the tables by referencing Psalm 110 with a question to them. It's a theological question. It's a question that is based upon the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and of the uh, uh, divine authority and inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Jesus references the Holy Spirit as the one behind Psalm 110 that he quotes as David saying, um, the Lord said to my Lord. And, And Jesus asked the question, how is it that David, being his ancestor, can call him his Lord? It's a wonderful question. It's a question that, that overarches in its answer these truths from Scripture about the Holy Trinity and the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture. David spoke by the Holy Spirit. David spoke as prophet of one to come who would be his descendant, his son, but who would be greater than him as his Lord. It's covenant theology that answers the question that Jesus posed. And so how are the doctrines of the Holy Trinity and the divine inspiration of Holy Scripture connected by Jesus' self-revelation as the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah? How are these interpreted in the New Testament by the New Covenant Christian Gospel? When I say New Testament, I'm talking about the writings of the New Testament. And I... um, would refine that in terms of the new, the new Covenant Christian Gospel. The New Testament writings and their subject and theme are the New Covenant Christian Gospel in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His work in fulfillment of God's promise, the great and eternal covenant of grace. So in verses 38 through 44, that brings us then to the conclusion of chapter 12, Jesus singled out religious hypocrisy and interpreted a widow's poverty offering in faith as being of greater meaning to God. I think this still stuns us today. I don't think it's lost its power at all. Uh, When Jesus gave this warning and Jesus singled out religious hypocrisy, then and now, the Scriptures direct us and speak clearly about religious hypocrisy. And we must therefore be clear. The the New Testament scriptures are often pointing out, often even naming names in terms of religious hypocrisy and Christian hypocrisy and the danger of of Christian apostasy. That Going back to the beginning of the chapter with the uh, parable of the wicked vine dressers. So yeah, this is a theme that's taken up through the balance of New Testament scriptures as Jesus singles out religious hypocrisy. And then having warned about this matter of religious hypocrisy, and particularly as he expresses his um, ire over how widows are treated. Look at verse 40. He talks about uh, this religious hypocrisy and people who want to make a pretense and draw attention to themselves and um, use others. And he says, verse 40, who devour widows' houses. He singles that out among many, many other things, but he singles out this extortion. You might remember elsewhere, Jesus talked about the ill treatment of parents. 
Jesus was irate about the extortion that was going on in the temple. So following this, Jesus goes into uh, the court of the women where the treasury uh, was set up for people to make their public offerings. And he notices as the people are coming, and uh, the way it was set up, there were these uh, fluted uh, brass receptacles that were all, uh, actually called after the, um, the horns calling uh, Israel in the Old Testament to worship, the shafar. Uh, they were called that, but they were these brass kind of fluted receptacles. And whenever you would drop money into them, guess what would happen? It would make a clanging sound. The more money, the more clanging. Maybe the bigger the coins, it would even have a different sound. I, I don't know. But the point is, Jesus was observing this. He was hearing, and he made the note that many of the wealthy were coming and giving in such a way that it was noticeable. I mean, you could hear it. And here comes a widow who drops in something akin to two pennies. I mean, you and I find pennies in the parking lot, and we don't even bend over to pick them up anymore. And so here's a widow who drops in her two little coins. And Jesus says she's given more than all the rest. Why? Well, Jesus interprets that for us in terms of her poverty offering. How does Jesus singling out religious hypocrisy connect with his observation about a widow's poverty offering in faith provide an object lesson for interpreting Scripture by the New Covenant Christian Gospel? How do we understand that what she gave was of more meaning to God than those who gave vast amounts of money that was worth more in human terms? It's only the good news, the gospel interpreted from, for us from Scripture that tells us how that was a more meaningful offering because of the way God values things. And he's revealed by his self-revelation and by the authority of his scripture to tell us what is more valuable to him. That's what Jesus is pointing out. So Mark's samplings of Jesus' teachings, applying scripture passages that we've seen from the Old Testament and which we can connect with New Testament passages that elaborate and enlarge on the teachings of Jesus. So Mark's samplings of Jesus' teachings and applying scripture passages are like gospel seeds of the new covenant, watered by the Holy Spirit to bring forth the fruit of faith. These teachings are like seed. Do these seeds bear fruit by faith in your life? The Holy Spirit convincing you that the things that I've preached this morning that we've heard Jesus say here, do you believe them? I read these things and I thank God I believe them. They're alive in my own conscience. In faith, they have brought forth fruit of believing these things that Jesus has said and how they connect with all of Scripture, particularly how they're enlarged and applied through the New Testament writings. I believe it is the living Word of God. And it directs us how we are to identify as Christians in faith and in life, to live unto God and to live in testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the source of the gospel, that good news of God's way of salvation that comes out of His grace, His willing condescension, who is not only Creator, but is also Savior of those who believe.
We'll continue on next week with chapter 13. Uh, again, uh, giving a summary of the chapter and uh, hoping that you'll take that summary and hope that you'll pray and search out the scriptures to see if these things are so.